my name's Casey. I work for a startup called Netflix. <laughs> We're a subscription service, um, not like a magazine subscription, more like, uh, well, more, more like a library. You get a library card and you go into the library and you get access to all of the content inside of the library. You can read books out of order if you want. Um, I guess the difference is uh, we hire people to act out the books. So really the value proposition for Netflix is that we save you from the trouble of reading. Um, and like libraries, uh, Netflix, it turns out, is very popular. So popular that over a third of the bits on the internet in North America are Netflix video traffic. And uh, I could talk to you about um, our CDN, the world's largest CDN, um, but um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer cache and validation, that's kind of a, a you know, trivial problem to solve, and this is an architecture track, so I thought I'd talk about something a little bit more interesting. So I'm gonna talk about um, our control plane. Our control plane is deployed in AWS in three regions, and it's a microservice. And I'm gonna take um, a little bit to talk to you about um, what our architecture looks like, what our microservice uh, looks like, because microservice means different things to different people. So here's a diagram of our microservice. We have seven microservices, A through G. And at the top, you can see uh, the icon up there represents a consumer device. So television, um, uh, mobile phone, website, PlayStation, however you uh, access Netflix the service, um, you, know, you have some sort of device. And what happens when you access the service is a request comes in and hits service D. And service D doesn't have all of the information it needs to respond to that request. So D will reach out to C and F. And likewise, C and F don't have all of the information that they need to completely respond to their requests. So C will reach out to A and F will reach out to B and G. And uh, A will reach out to uh, B and E and G will also reach out to E and B. And you end up with that kind of like spaghetti communication that uh, in green up there, those green lines. And then the results are all returned. And uh, finally, service D emits the response back to the client. Um, which is great, except for, again, all of that spaghetti communication, that the IPC, the inter-process communication up there, is a little confusing. And I fibbed. We don't have seven uh, microservices. We have hundreds. Here's just um, the request for the streaming path, where the hollow circles represent uh, microservices. I hid the labels because they're not important. And you can see requests coming in from the left-hand side of the screen, from the internet, and they hit that one node, and that's our um, proxy, and then the requests just fan out. And it gets kind of complex. So uh, why would we do that? Why would we build an architecture that's uh, complicated like this? So in a previous life, I was um, an engineering consultant and was privileged enough to see a lot of different architectures, a, a lot of different uh, fairly large companies. And uh, I noticed, this is just an observation, that most engineering organizations tend to optimize for one of these three properties, performance, fault tolerance, or availability. And we all know what performance is, so I'll distinguish between fault tolerance and availability. Uh, fault tolerance, uh, you can think of as making sure that the state that you have is correct. So for example, a bank 
fintech insurance company. They're going to want to make sure that the state is correct, whereas availability is making sure that the uh, system uh, is responding to user requests. So contrast to like fintech or a bank who are more concerned with fault tolerance with like a massive multiplayer game who's going to be more concerned with availability. And if the state gets corrupted, that might not even really matter. So usually I would see engineering organizations optimize for one of these things at the expense of the other two. But more experienced engineering teams will optimize for all three simultaneously. Now there's some nuance in there because there's trade-offs. So uh, within the context of the business requirements, you're going to want to optimize for uh, one at the expense of the other two, potentially, given you know, your resource constraints. But finding a balance is great. And I was really excited when I got to Netflix because I found that they also optimized for this fourth uh, property, feature velocity. And um, I've been at many organizations that optimize for feature velocity, but they try to do it through process, like um, you know, Agile or Scrum or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about engineering decisions that are made specifically to optimize for feature velocity. So for example, moving to the cloud so that we can focus on features rather than infrastructure, that's an engineering decision, an architectural decision explicitly made to optimize for feature velocity. Likewise, choosing a microservice architecture is a decision that explicitly optimizes for feature velocity. Because uh, we don't have a monolith, we now aren't uh, limited by the lowest common denominator of which component in the system uh, needs to be updated. The microservices can deploy on their own cycle. And at Netflix, the, the engineering organization is a little bit different from most other companies I've been at as well, or that I've witnessed, in that it's easier for me to think of the engineering organization at Netflix as really being like 100 or so um, small engineering teams, say like five to seven engineers each, and there's no like chief architect that ties that together. So each microservice is owned by an engineering team. And that engineering team is responsible not only for the functionality of the microservice, but also for its operational characteristics. So its deployment cycle, its uptime, things like that. So that's a complex system. And I want to dig into that a little bit. What do I mean by a complex system? Well, I like to call them unreasonable systems because I find that gets under the skin of academics. A complex system, by its nature, is an unreasonable system. It exceeds the, ca the capacity of a human mind to comprehend the interaction of parts in any predictive capacity. So it's unreasonable because you cannot reason about it. So when I hear people say, oh, we're looking for a way to reason about this complex system, I interpret that to mean you're looking for a way to make the complex system not complex. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do. But I understand why you want to do it, because there are problems with complex systems. What kind of problems? Well, let's explore some. Uh, let's explore some with um, the beer game. Uh, this is a big enough audience, there might be some MBAs in here who have played the, the beer game. Uh, I also played a beer game in college, but this is a different beer game. This is like a more... Um, and if you're planning on taking an, an MBA, you might have to take a systems thinking class. And uh, if so, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin the whole class for you. So how does the beer game work? Well, in the beer game, there are three teams. There's customers, they like drinking beer. There are retailers, they sell the beer. 
and there are brewers who manufacture the beer. And the point of the game is to optimize for the customer's happiness and profit for the other two teams. Optimize for your own team first, but really you want everyone to be happy. Um, and we need a story here. We're all engineers, so we'll say the product is um, foo beer. And if we were actually to play this, you know, a professor, what they, what they would do is they would divide the room into these three teams and they would physically separate them. And you can only communicate to each other through slips of paper that you can write out intent or goods or money um, uh, uh, exchanged. Um, so obviously we're not going to do that because it would take too long to set up partitions. So I'll take you through a, a, a simulation of a game very much condensed. Uh, you don't have to follow the numbers along here. Um, you can if you want, but I'm just going to go through them very quickly. So here we have like one round of play. We'll call this week zero, where uh, the demand for a case of foo beer is one. And so a customer purchases one over the course of a week. A retailer has two in stock, so they have one remaining. They order one. The brewer has eight bottled ready to go, and they're brewing one case. And so what you have here is a, is a system in equilibrium because the demand one on one side matches what's being produced by the brewer one case on the other side. So that's great. So that's our steady state equilibrium to start off with. Uh, every story needs a protagonist. Um, this is, I need a name, Nathan. <laughs> this is Nathan the dog. Uh, so Nathan is a software engineer like us, very brilliant software engineer. And he's driving home from work one day and he says, you know what, I've got all of these brilliant ideas. I really just need to like, get over myself and publish them and share them with the world. Um, so, okay, he stops on his way home, goes into the retail store, says, I want three cases of beer. Well, he's a software engineer, so what kind of beer is he going to buy? Of course, food beer. Um, he can only buy two because the retailer only has two. So I captured the, the missing sales as a negative two there. Um, and the retailer wants to stay ahead of that, so they order five from the brewer, who you know, wants to stay ahead of that, so they uh, bottle six. And he goes home and uh, drinks both cases of beer, and um, he publishes the Foo Beer Manifesto, which is, is, is brilliant. It's, um, you know, it's about the future of technology and how everything is, is going to uh, live on um, serverless edge cloud drones on the blockchain. <laughs> it's great, right? So it goes to number one on Hacker News, so popular. Um, you know, he's famous. He starts planning his ICO. And because it's the, the Foo uh, Beer Manifesto, the next week there's uh, an increase in demand, customer demand for Foo Beer. So demand goes up to 64 cases. They can only buy five because the retailer didn't have any. The retailer, however, wants to match the current demand, so they order uh, 65. And the brewer sees this, and they want to match what they see as exponential growth, so they start bottling 250 cases and add an extra distillery. Um, but that weekend, every store needs an antagonist. I can't think of a name, so we'll just call him Project Manager. Uh, project Manager reads the Fubier Manifesto and says, oh my god, this is terrible, and writes a scathing rebuttal. It just, it just destroys it. It's, it's really short, though. It fits in a tweet, so I can actually read the whole thing. Um, no, bad Nathan, no. <laughs> and it gets you know, a million retweets, almost brings Twitter down because it's so popular. And it's just like, he's crushed. His ICO falls apart. His personal net worth uh, you know, 
goes down to normal levels. And uh, so the next week, uh, the only person who wants to buy foo beer is Nathan the dog. Uh, so we go back to uh, three, but the brewer's uh, case comes online. And the week after, we go back to steady state demand of one, and we end up with this terrible result. Again, the game was to optimize for customer happiness and profit. Instead, we end up with uh, 61 cases that customers wanted to buy but couldn't, a uh, retailer who has an extra 62 cases that they'll never be able to um, offload. Uh, likewise, the brewery has 196 they can offload, and an extra dis distillery, WTF, are they going to do with that? Uh, such a, sorry, Nathan, such a, such a sad result. So. Why, would why are professors so mean? Why would they put us all through this? The game almost always ends up with this result. Usually there are a lot more rounds, it takes longer, you know, usually it's like a whole day or half day type thing, but it almost always ends up with that type of bad result. Um, and for a systems thinking class, the reason that they do this is to specifically teach uh, a type of effect called the bullwhip effect where uh, a sudden uh, change in input uh, has a big influence on output that's hard to recover from. And systems thinking is great about uh, analyzing and giving us ways to think about these, uh, these nonlinear effects. Uh, but the important part for us uh, here is that none of the three teams were, st were stupid. None of them did anything wrong. The decisions that they make as they play this are all very rational. And that applies directly to a microservice. You could have provably correct code in all of these microservices, and yet that still wouldn't protect you from aberrant or unwanted systemic effects. That's a property of a complex system. I can give you another example. Um, we have a show called Stranger Things. Has anybody seen it? Somebody must have. Seen it. OK, one person's seen it. Cool. Um, and when this, the first season came out last year, uh, it was really cool. I was on a train watching it at night. So it was great ambiance for like kind of a horror thing. And you know, I had my laptop uh, on my lap and a coffee. And uh, there was a scene that like, I don't want to give anything away, but like I was a little, I don't know, surprised. And so like, you know, went like that. And my coffee spilled on my laptop and it stopped playing. And I, you know, pull out a bunch of napkins and I'm trying to dry it off. And, and it doesn't start playing again, so I do what any user would do. I hit refresh 100 times. <laughs> but I'm on a train, so I'm probably between cell towers, and I don't know if it was a web browser or my laptop or what. They queue up the requests, and suddenly 100 requests go through to Netflix um, all at once. So what happens on the Netflix side? Microservice architecture, I saw the picture of that. Uh, I just want to bring your attention to two particular microservices. One is for personalization, which says, hey, for this given user, we know all this th stuff about them. So we're going to show like you know, shows that you might want to watch again, or recommendations, or other things that are personalized to your um, experience to make it a, a better experience. And a customer microservice that just stores uh, data for uh, the customers. And these are built uh, with, you know, uh, distributed system best, best practices. And so, for example, the customer uh, microservice is a cluster, and it doesn't store all of the data on each node, um, because that would be a lot. Uh, then we would have to have very large nodes. 
So instead, um, each node has a smaller subspace of the data, and we use a consistent hash based on the user ID to figure out which node to go to to, to get the data from. And um, we have fallbacks in place. So if personalization can't talk to the customer thing for whatever reason, it'll serve a default experience. Or if the customer uh, microservice can't talk to uh, the database, it can serve stuff from in memory. And of course, we're on the cloud, and each team, engineering team, is responsible for the operation of their own microservice. So um, to be responsible for uh, our resources, they have uh, scaling policies, intelligent scaling policies set up. Like if load gets low, then we shrink the cluster. And if load gets high, then we expand the cluster. So all of a sudden, 100 uh, requests for one user come into the customer um, microservice, which uses a consistent hash to throw all the requests to one node. And that node says, whoa, 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 I'm having trouble talking to the database this quickly. So I'm going to uh, flip into my fallback mode and serve things from memory. Cool. Um, turns out memory is a lot less CPU and I.O. intensive than um, getting stuff off of disk. So the average uh, load for the cluster goes down. So to be responsible for the resources, the SG shrinks, terminates that node, moves its uh, data over to another node. Um, and as these 100 ones are going through, and now it's rebalancing that cluster, the personalization service on the 100th request gets uh, bored of waiting for the customer uh, microservice. So it serves a default experience that looks something like this. Um, so now I'm on the train, and I see this default experience. I'm like, hey, that is not what I'm used to seeing, right? Like, where's my Portlandia row? So I'm, not, I'm seeing something that I'm not used to seeing, so I do what any reasonable user does. I hit refresh 100 times. <laughs> and so the same thing happens. 100 requests go to the same node, but it's a new node. It doesn't have all the data yet. So um, it flips the serving things out of cache, and the data might be a little bit more stale, but that's okay, it's faster, which reduces the average load for the cluster, so the cluster shrinks, um, but it causes more delay, so personalization now sends out its fallback, its default view for more users who see something that they're not used to. So they do what users do, they start hitting refresh. And now we have a user-induced retry storm. So now we've got all these users who are hitting refresh to try to get the, the proper response back, and it you know, hits the customer microservice, which flips all of the nodes into serving things from uh, memory, which drastically reduces the load. So that cluster shrinks to be uh, cognizant of its resources, responsible about its resource utilization, and that ultimately brings the customer service uh, over. That tips over, the personalization falls over, and that's how I brought down Netflix when Stranger Things season one was released. <laughs> now that's not a true story, probably. Um, but things like that do happen, and uh, what's the problem there, right? We can't blame the customer. Well, we can, but like you know, we can't blame the customer. So who's at fault? Nobody's at fault there, actually. The, the services were designed well, they were built well, and you know, engineers are not omniscient. They can't predict these sorts of effects. So even though uh, we can see in hindsight that there's a story about, oh, there's a vulnerability there, at the time, nothing was done wrong. The engineers were optimizing for the right things along the way which is weird, because we got a result that we didn't want. So 
Who's the enemy here? Maybe it's complexity. Um, I have a framework called economic complexity. I don't really have a name for it, so I picked economic complexity because, um, so, uh, the, the framework was introduced to me by Kent Beck, and it was introduced to him by an economics professor, so maybe this is an economics thing. I'm not sure. But economic complexity, uh, you can think of things that could um, intensify complexity or frustrate uh, delivering a product. These four things, states, the number of states that a product or a program could have, relationships between the elements that constitute or produce it, the uncertainty in the environment, and the irreversibility of your decisions. So the classic example of uh, tackling states and relationships is uh, Ford, where like you want a car, okay, we only have one kind of car. You get a, uh, um, uh, the one kind of car. And uh, relationships where uh, the manufacturers of the car, uh, they didn't, um, they didn't create like artisan cars the way they used to. They, they had assembly lines. So you knew exactly what the input was and you knew exactly what the output should be. So for all of your Model Ts, you can measure your output uh, at the end of an, an assembly line. Now, of course, you still have environmental uncertainty and market conditions. In software, we tend to not control for state because that's driven by uh, roadmaps and customer requests. Relationships, in the case of complex systems, can grow unbounded between the parts, as you can see with the, the microservice example. The environment, we're just, there's not a lot that we can do about that. But irreversibility, we can start to tackle or perhaps tame. And so this is where moving to the cloud, moving to models of continuous uh, delivery, and uh, agile practices as opposed to like waterfallish stuff. Uh, containers, serverless. This helps erode the irreversibility of our decisions, which gives us a leg up in handling complexity. So if you can make an architectural or engineering decision that helps make future decisions more easily reversible, that might help you in your battle against complexity. But again, is complexity the enemy? You can think of complexity in, in two parts, accidental and essential. Accidental complexity looks like this. It's a byproduct of doing work. Uh, it's like dirt on the floor. Nobody's bringing it inside the house on purpose. It just appears. Well, I have two kids, so sometimes they bring it in on purpose. But like, you know, for most places, it just appears. Complexity just appears. And we can, con we can contrast that with essential complexity, which is designed into the system. So the interesting thing about accidental complexity is I don't really know of a good way to clean up after this in software. And it could be I haven't met the right people or I'm just not exposed to the right framework. But it also seems to me that there aren't many software engineers who are aligned to tackle something like that. Not many people seem motivated to adopt practices of um, tackling accidental complexity. I know, I, I know like one guy in my career who just really loves to refactor stuff. He's, he's, he's been writing a book on it for like 10 years and like just keeps rewriting the same. 
Sorry, Adam. Uh, but really, that's not like, you know, you don't often hear that from engineers, that they're excited to, to um, or maybe conceptually they are, but I don't often hear that engineers actually do spend the time to go back and refactor their stuff to remove accidental complexity. It's particularly hard to do when you have deadlines and other pressures. And so then that leaves the essential complexity. Um, about a year ago, somebody said that they wanted to make, uh, they wanted to uh, choose a solution that was simple given some options that we were considering. And I asked, why? And he said, well, because I want it to be more available. And I had to think about that for a minute. And I strongly disagree that those things go together. I think best case scenario, simplicity and availability are orthogonal. Worst case scenario, they actually go together. So if I had an in-memory key-value database running on my laptop, right, simplest thing in the world, and I asked you to make it more available and more simple, you couldn't. There's nothing that you can do. There's plenty of ways that you can make it more available, right? You can add consistent hashing and replicas, and you can figure out, you know, with cap theorem, are you going to optimize for the C or the A? There, there's a lot of ways that we know to make it more available but all of them involve adding complexity. So if adding complexity is part of how we get, uh, how we optimize for the properties that we want for a project, then it's probably not the enemy, and removing it is probably not going to do us any good. So if it's accidental, maybe, but especially essential complexity, uh, focusing on, tr on making things simpler or removing that complexity might not buy you much. So, so far I've basically been um, describing the water. So what do we do about this? Well, what I propose is instead of trying to eliminate or reduce complexity, we get better at navigating it. I'd go a step further and say if you stay in the software industry, it will get more and more likely that you will be working on complex systems instead of simple ones. Systems where you can't predict how the system is going to uh, respond to a particular uh, environmental condition or input. So what do we do about it? Chaos engineering was designed to help navigate this in a particular way. So Netflix has uh, made Chaos Engineering famous for two particular projects, Chaos Monkey and Chaos Kong. And I'm not going to dive into how the projects themselves work, but I'll describe what they do. So when we moved to the cloud from the data center, we had some uh, incidents related to single points of failure disappearing. When we moved to the cloud, we, mo we moved to a system where we were scaling horizontally. So we drastically in increased the number of um, servers that we were running on, and some of those instances would occasionally disappear. And if that was a critical service, then we would have an, an outage. And like I said, we don't have a chief architect at uh, Netflix. We don't have a CTO either. So there's no mechanism, even though we know how to protect ourselves from things like uh, uh, you know, an instance disappearing, there's no mechanism at Netflix for us to say, thou shalt, 
you know, we can't take our best practices. We could list like a dozen best practices, right? Make sure you're deployed in, you know, at least three AZs, and you know, we, we could list, list a bunch of things. But we just can't tell all of our engineers, you have to do this, because that just doesn't exist at Netflix. There's no way to do that. So instead, what we did is we took the pain of the problem that we were trying to solve, instances disappearing, and we brought it to the forefront for all of the engineers. Chaos Monkey randomly will take one node from your microservice every day and, and turn it off during business hours. So if you don't design your system to be resilient to that, then you just won't get much done. So you fix that. Engineers are really good at that. The problem is right here. OK, I'll fix the problem that's right here. And then they can go on and focus back on their features again. And for years now, many years, we have not had an outage due to a single point of failure. So that was pretty powerful, small scale. So we looked at big scale, chaos con. Same idea. We want to be resilient to uh, outages at a regional level. Again, we're deployed in three regions. So if one of the regions goes down, or if we shoot ourselves in the foot because we stage our deployments by region, we want to move all of those users to the other two regions. And to make sure that we can do that and that we can survive that kind of uh, incident, um, we run Chaos Kong regularly by turning off a region. Actually, we can't turn off a region. AWS won't let us. Something about having other clients. And if, I, if anybody knows where I can submit a feature product request to be able to do that. So we just simulate it very well. We simulate a region going down, and we drain all of the, the traffic from that region and send it to the other two. So that's Chaos Con. So uh, these two were the start of chaos engineering. And we thought, OK, we're onto something. But what is this actually giving us? Well, here's another framework to think about uh, what we're doing here. So Rasmussen has this notion that over time, a project will drift towards the things for which it has a signal. Economics, workload, and safety are the three primary signals. So economics is easy. And usually, like, you can figure that out if you're a software engineer. You vaguely know, like, OK, people cost money who are working on this thing. And there's like cloud costs and, and stuff like that. And workload, if you have a good manager, generally you can see. You have some idea of, like, oh, there's a lot of people working on this, or there's not many people working on this. And so over time, you will make your project more efficient for cost, or you will make it more efficient for um, you know, operating it and maintaining it and stuff like that. But you rarely ever have a signal for safety, unless your service is falling down all the time. So usually, you don't know that your project is unsafe until you have an outage. And again, this is a complex system, so you can't predict when the outage is going to happen. You only know after it happens. So you don't get that signal. The entire time that you're getting slowly more and more unsafe, there's no way for you to know. But what Chaos Kong and Chaos Monkey are doing is they're providing you with a safety signal. And that keeps you from drifting into failure and instead allows you to drift to a more successful place, a more available place. Um, so when I first got to Netflix um, and I asked what chaos engineering was, the answer that I heard most often was 
that's when you break stuff in production. I thought, well, that sounds really cool. But I can think of a lot of ways to break stuff in production that would add no value to Netflix whatsoever. Probably just make a lot of enemies. So uh, we sat down and we decided to formalize this. And we created um, you know, the document up there, principlesofchaos.org, that says this is what we think chaos engineering is, so that we know when we're doing it, how to do it, and how to do it better. And here's uh, the, the rough um, definition. It's the facilitation of experiments to uncover systemic weaknesses. Experiments is an important designation uh, differentiation from tests here. This, like, if you were to map out where this lives in computer science, it would still kind of fall under QA, although that kind of has a um, bad connotation in a lot of places. But, like, you know, it sits next to testing. So classical testing, this is my classical picture. Classical testing, uh, you know, if you start with a unit test, you know you have some input function, you assert some output. And for more sophisticated tests, well, you can just compose those. But you're making an assertion about something that you know or you expect. So that's classical testing. And testing and experimentation are not the same thing. Tests define the valence of a known asserted property. You're making an assertion. Whereas, strictly speaking, tests do not create new knowledge. Experiments create new knowledge by nullifying a hunch. And that kicks you in the butt to go figure out what it is that you're seeing. That creates new knowledge. So chaos engineering falls into the new knowledge camp, whereas testing, um, I'm not saying don't test, it's still very valuable. It does something different. Best practices for chaos engineering, build a hypothesis about steady state behavior. So as engineers, we have the temptation, we want to know how things work. So we have the temptation when we find something that's wrong, we want to dig in and figure out why is this working or why is it wrong. Chaos engineering wants to pull you away from that because that kind of reductionist thinking doesn't help with complex systems. So instead of figuring out um, how something works, chaos engineering wants to focus on just whether it works. So we get, we're looking for steady state behavior. For Netflix, it's easy. Our steady state metric uh, across the business is how many uh, video starts do we get per second? And that's a fairly smooth uh, graph. So we can look at that uh, steady state behavior to know whether or not the system's working. And if it's not working, then we have plenty of other tools and, and ways to figure out why it's not working. Very real world events. This captures the uncertainty of your environment. Experiment in production. Complex systems, you're dealing with unknowns that you don't know about. So it would be kind of foolish to think that you can articulate the things in production that you don't know about and mirror them exactly in test. So not always possible, but we push on this pretty hard and we run our experiments in production. Automate experiments to run continuously. This helps with uh, continuous delivery and helps uh, chip away at irreversibility. And then minimize the blast radius. So the point of chaos testing is not to introduce chaos you're surfacing chaos that's already inherent in the system. So if you think that running an experiment is going to impact customers in a negative way, don't do that. Don't run that. 
fix the problem first and then run an experiment to see if you're right, that you are able to, that you are resilient to that condition. So those are the advanced principles of chaos. We seem to have pretty good consensus across the industry that this definition of chaos engineering is good and worthwhile. Uh, three years ago, we started running Chaos Community Day. Uh, we've had uh, three of these now. The second one uh, we held in Amazon's offices in Seattle. It was great. The last one most recently in uh, San Francisco. And if you want to read more about it, you can go to principlesofchaos.org. Uh, so Chaos Monkey, small scale, Chaos Kong, large scale. But we've got this mess, this complex system mess. And we want to we figure out how to take the same thing, the same advantages of getting that safety signal and apply it to um, uh, a microservice architecture. So we created a, a program called CHAP, stands for Chaos Automation Platform. And there are other talks on this and other blogs on it, so I won't delve into the details. But at a high level, what it allows us to do is select a service that we want to study, in this case, service C, clone it, create two small clones of it, um, deploy those in the cloud, because you see I have the little cloud shape there. And uh, one of those is a control, and one of those is an experimental group. And we route our requests through the production stack, except for the requests that are in the experiment, a small subset of production. Uh, we, run, we route those to either the control or the experimental group instead of service C. And the rest, of, the rest of the requests are in production. So just for the thing that we want to study, we pull those out um, for these two groups. And then we apply some condition to uh, the experimental group, like you can't talk to Cassandra, or all of your requests have 200 milliseconds, or you run at your SLA. That's an interesting one. And then that allows us to see, OK, again, our hypothesis is that we're resilient to whatever condition that we're introducing. So if we see our, our uh, video starts diverge between the control and the experimental group, then we stop the experiment. And we go to the service team and say, hey, we thought we were resilient to this thing. And it turns out we aren't. OK, and they can figure out how to fix that. So we give them that safety signal. So that's CHAP. So that's chaos engineering. That's one way that we found that helps us navigate chaos without trying to reduce it or deprive ourselves of the advantages that, that uh, complexity is giving us. Another one is intuition engineering. And this is kind of hard to explain. So I have a metaphor that I'll acknowledge up front is kind of absurd. But imagine you had a suit covered in electrodes and the placement of the electrodes correspond to your microservices. And when you're on call, you have the privilege of wearing the suit. <laughs> we affectionately call this the pain suit. <laughs> so for example, you, you know, you're wearing the pain suit, you're on call, you wake up at 3 in the morning, and your shoulder hurts, and you're like, ah, oh, damn it, login is down again. Um, our hypothesis is that after wearing the pain suit for not very long, you would develop an extra sense of the health, the state of the system, that you might not even be able to articulate why you feel that way. But you would just kind of feel it. So that I could say, you know, hey, Nathan, how's the system doing? And you'd be, ah, pretty good. Or, eh, something's off. And then we have other tools to figure out what's off. 
right? We've got metrics and monitoring and analysis to go like dive in and figure out what's wrong with something. Uh, but we really like this idea of capturing uh, a new sense of a holistic complex system, uh, again, in ways that you might not even be able to articulate. Uh, so we haven't built a pain suit yet. But we developed uh, a visual analog. It's called Visceral. Uh, so here's Visceral. So the circle in the middle represents uh, the internet. And the circles in the points of the triangle are the three regions that were deployed in on AWS. And the dots moving between the big circle and the corners, those are requests coming in from the internet going to our three regions. And as long as you've been seeing this now, your brain has figured out what normal looks like based on the volume of dots, the color, most of them are blue, occasionally you'll see a red or yellow one, the speed at which they move. Let's see if there's an easy way for me to play this again here. The speed at which they move, the direction, uh, volume, color. Our brains are really good at processing a lot of data in parallel. So once we know what normal looks like, when we're in the middle of something, we can just glance at this and go, oh yeah, everything looks right. As opposed to you know, going through our, our metrics. I mean, we've got the metrics. It takes about 42 time series charts to duplicate the amount of information that you get from this. So in an instant, you can just get it and that gives you a new sense of the state of this system, holistically. So that's called Visceral. It's an open source uh, project. And that's intuition engineering. So um, I am just a manager. So here are the people who uh, actually do the work on the chaos team. And uh, I hope I've given you uh, something to think about in terms of complexity and whether or not you want to tackle it, navigate it, uh, remove it, some frameworks to think about it in different ways. And we also wrote a book on chaos engineering. And the most fun part for me at a conference like this is taking questions, and we have enough time to, so I'm hoping you have questions. And we can start by just raise your hand, shout it out, I'll repeat it, and then um, I think we have enough time to like actually man the microphones up here, if that's all right. Yes. So So if each team is independent, how do we add hooks for CHAP, the, the automation platform? Uh, well, we do have common um, IPC methods. So we do have a uh, failure injection uh, library that sits at the junction between microservices. So each microservice doesn't create their own way of communicating with other microservices. We use things like REST and gRPC. And then we can just, you know, there's maybe a handful of things that we know about so we can build our chaos tools into those. Yep. 
if, if, I'm sorry, if you have other questions you want to line up at the mics, that would work too. My question is, um, is the uh, failure injection libraries and Chapel is that contributed to open source? And is it available for people to try? Uh, so um, parts of it are, but generally no. So CHAP is still a work in progress. Might get to a point where we release it open source, but right now it's really specific to certain aspects of Netflix's internal architecture that don't make it generally applicable across the industry. Right. Um, so not yet there. But are there plans? Uh, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, so this makes a lot of sense if you already have your like domain split up across microservices, but without an architect to like oversee your type role, how did you initially split up like the problem domain into the services? So how did we transition from a monolith to a microservice? Without an architect. Without an architect. Uh, so I wasn't there, so I honestly can't answer that. Um, my hunch is that we started off with architects. And um, are there any architects here? Oh, sorry. Um, uh, I see a world where architects are um, and I don't mean any of you, of course. But architects in general are potentially less relevant. Because as we, as an industry, move to a place where we're all working with more complex systems, we're all going to have to get comfortable with that layer of complexity that can't fit in any human's mind. And in the old setting, what an architect was really good at was fitting all of the pieces together and understanding how they interact such that if you needed to add a feature or add a component or change something, you could go to the architect, the, the, you know, the wise one, and because they had the mental model in their head, they could say, okay, yeah, if you add this, then that's gonna, yeah, that's fine. Or no, well, you don't realize that there's this other thing that's gonna counteract that. We're, we're moving, as an industry, we're moving out of that territory. So um, I think that accelerates the move from monoliths to microservices but it probably makes it more difficult for uh, us to go in, go in the opposite direction. Who are the people that are actually looking at Visceral and the node maps? Is it the engineers? Is it like almost like a business intelligence tool sometimes? Like who's looking at mm. those? So Visceral was specifically created for the traffic team, which is responsible for the remediation when one of the uh, regions fails. So a region fails, the traffic team moves all of those customers through a combination of DNS and proxying and other things. And um, last year, that process took about 45 minutes. Just our control plane is somewhere on the order of 3% of internet traffic in North America, not including the video. So like moving from one region to the other two is a lot of traffic. Um, so it took about 45 minutes, and so during that process, they needed a way to go, okay, moving traffic, moving traffic, okay, are the healthy regions still healthy? And if they had to stop and read 42 charts, then they might miss something. And in fact, there were cases where once we did have Visceral, they just glanced at that and said, oh, shoot, we have a problem, and they were able to prevent us from bringing the service down. 
by having a more gradual or you know fixing things. So uh, initially, it was only used during um, incident remediation for the traffic team. At this point, traffic has gotten the traffic team has gotten that process down from 45 minutes to closer to five, so they don't even have time to look at visceral. And I think intuition engineering, the power of intuition engineering, lives somewhere between you recognize you have a complex system and you're able to automate or machine learn your way out of that particular problem. And maybe that's a couple of years, right? At some point, I just want to be able to ask the system, hey, are you healthy? And it'll tell me. And maybe that's a year or two away. In the meantime, Visceral is a great way to, to provide the user interface to transmit that data to us. So I think intuition engineering will have a moving window in technology to bring people into the, into the mix. So you mentioned you have uh, common hooks into failure and communication to enable some of this. Are there other important shared libraries or uh, standards for services to enable uh, chaos engineering or in intuition engineering? Um, for us, no. Uh, there's, there's a small group of um, consultancies now that specialize in chaos engineering. And we've spoken to many companies that have um, implemented chaos engineering in their own way. And usually that involves the same thing. They look for the IPC junction, or um, like a, if you have like a service mesh, that's an easy way, that, you know, then you've got an easy target uh, to, to focus on to start implementing it. But there's no like mm, generic spec or like cross-industry spec for it. So it seems uh, a little scary to go impact production traffic and you know, essentially affect your revenue streams, especially for more order-driven businesses. So how do you get a buy-in from product and people that aren't engineers, and how do you quantify the results of chaos engineering in such a way that they'll actually let you do these things? So quantifying the results is not the most straightforward thing in the world. But getting buy-in, best way to do it is never let a good disaster go to waste. You will have a failure, right, at some point, and when you do, be ready and pounce on it. And hopefully, it'll be the type of failure that you can definitively say, had we been doing chaos experiments, we could have caught this. But even if not, you can say, here's a bunch of uncertainty. We're not even beginning to tackle uncertainty. Um, so that's the best way to kind of justify it to people who are a little bit more removed from the problem and who don't understand that even writing good code isn't going to save you from these type of systemic effects. Thank you. The previous question was very close to what I was going to ask. I wanted to convince my company to run Chaos Monkeys in production, and they're highly reticent to do that. Hmm. And so your advice on that was largely be ready to pounce on that next challenge. Yeah, so three years ago, we heard from financial institutions, oh, we can never do chaos at our place. We've got actual money on the line. You're just streaming videos. We've got real money. Um, and we said, well, okay, but like you have these incidents anyway, so would you rather like learn about lost p revenue or something that's going to impact money in a controlled environment, or are you just going to wait until like it happens and then panic? 
um, now, um, so it's been, it's, FinTech has taken up chaos engineering to the point where I believe it's ING, part of their internal auditing uh, uh, includes chaos engineering as a checklist, uh, you know, in their checklist as a check mark um, to prove that their systems are, you know, good for, you know, lending and stuff like that. Uh, so a lot of Bank of America, Bank of uh, Australia, uh, Capital One, a lot of these banks now have chaos engineering practices. So then, uh, last year, we heard from the medical industry, oh, well, sure, streaming video and money, Pff, we have lives on the line. We can never do chaos engineering with, you know, lives on the line. And that was great because that was a good opportunity to remind them that we're just implementing the best practices of Western science. Um, this is an empirical process. We're setting up an experiment, and we're, and a controlled experiment, and we're, and we're running it. And that was pioneered by clinical trials. So the, you know, the, 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 the best example that we have of the empirical process is a blind, controlled medical study. They already do this all the time. They run experiments where lives are on the line. Um, now, I haven't convinced anybody to change their clinical trial program to a chaos program, but... Um, it's essentially the same thing. So now we're starting to see some uh, you know, uptake in, in medical institutions and hospitals and things like that. Because again, they do have outages. They do have failures. It's just this is a way to control for it and to learn about it before it's really, really bad and so that you don't have to panic. So as an architect uh, trying to work himself out of a job, um, how do you get some of the commonalities in your service infrastructure that allow you to do things like CHAP uh, pull a service out and um, set, you know, uh, run the experiments on a, mm. a small subset of your production services? So if you have a, a really heterogeneous environment uh, with a bunch of different ways of doing communication between microservices, or you're not even talking about microservices? Um, yeah, mic microservice would be a great example, but how do you get some of the, the, the commonality and consistency without uh, central architecture? Uh, yeah, there's no magic bullet there uh, for us. It was, it was just uh, one um, client library at a time, uh, and then demonstrating that we could find results with the things that were affected by that client library, and then expanding. It didn't take us, I mean, we really only do two things with CHAP. We either fail a call, or we add latency. So we're just adding a tag in request context when a request comes into Netflix that propagates through the system, and at that juncture, it's just, it's just an if statement. If it has this, then fail it. If it has this, then assign this much latency. So it didn't take a lot of, it's all just typing, right? No. It, it didn't take a lot of uh, software engineering to actually get us that. Um, and it, it was just, um, you know, divide and conquer. Are chaos engineers embedded on the microservices teams, or is it a centralized kind of chaos engineering team? Right now, it's a centralized team. How do you keep the centralized team close to that intuition feeling of the services that are out there, or know what to necessarily go after which service? Mm. Uh, it's a delicate balance, because I don't want them to know too well the specific things to go after. Because then, they start understanding how the services work, and that takes their attention from figuring out whether the services are, are, are working. Macroscopically, we want to make sure that, that the service works and so we don't want to get hung up on 
this microservice isn't doing what we think it should be doing. Because if the video continues playing, I don't care. We could have a bunch of microservices failing, but if the customer experience is still great, great. I don't want to get hung up on that. Um, but they have to be good enough engineers and have to be familiar enough with them to know how to actually cause the failures. And obviously, if they spend all of their time uh, looking for keys under the lamp light, then that wouldn't be useful either. So um, there's definitely a balance there. Cool. Any more questions? All right, then. Thank you very much.